If you'll turn to in your Bibles, the Second Samuel chapter six, uh, not First Samuel. I know we've been there for a while, uh, but Second Samuel uh, chapter six, and I'll fill us in on what we missed between last week and this week in just a moment. Uh, <clears throat> but last week we we talked about worshiping God and and God drawing us unto Himself and teaching us and and training us and growing us in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of the cave. How do we relate to God? How do we, how do we understand him? How do we grow with him and understand that God is always at work, that he's always moving, uh, even when we're in the wilderness? That, that what we saw with David's life is that David was not in hiding, in running, in the cave, in his wilderness, so to speak, to uh, the, the fires of life to melt, but to be forged into the king that God had called him to be. And how God moves in our lives. But then there's also this aspect of, and we're going to see it in the text this week, how do do we relate to God? How do we worship him? How do we find joy in him and rejoicing in him when he's in our presence? When when things are going really well. When it seems like we're in the heights of life. When we're not in the depths. When we're not in the sorrows. We're not in the lows. But we're in the highs. When everything is going really well and it looks like the trajectory of life is just about to take off and everything that has gone wrong is about to be made right, and how do we actually live in the presence of God, worship Him in the way that we are called to, experience rejoicing and joy in those moments? And as we look at this text this morning, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right off the bat, it is one of those texts. I haven't had to say this in a long time, but it's one of those texts you wish you could just skip over. There's some difficulty here. I think it's going to be life-giving for every single one of us, but God is going to show us two things uh, in the midst of his presence that are required for us to rejoice and have joy that are beyond all of our circumstances, the highs and the lows, to have freedom in him despite whatever's going on in our lives. And one of those is to understand his holiness, and that's hard. And the second is that we have a deep understanding of his grace, and to do that, we have to understand his holiness. And that's what David's going to see in this text. And as I was kind of wrestling through this story, this text this morning, for this morning, uh, I thought to myself, oftentimes when we are in the wilderness, when we are in the cave, like when we went through the text last week, uh, a lot of times when we find ourselves in the lows of life, any way that God moves to reveal himself in power and in grace like, it's welcomed by us. Like, we feel hopeless. Like, we feel uh, scared. We, we feel desperate. And, and so even if God doesn't, like, just bring us out of the pit, so to speak, it's like, he just brought me out of this cave or this wilderness. Any little thing that he does in our lives to reveal himself in power and grace, it just reminds us there's something greater going on. It, it's welcomed by us. It, it causes us to worship him. It causes us to, to lean into him because we are desperate. We do feel hopeless. And so we turn to the one who who is hope and the one who is in control. And it's really easy to do that a lot of times. A lot of times we think of it in an opposite way. When I'm in the highs of life, it's easy for me to worship God. But when I'm in the lows, then it's very difficult for me. But oftentimes in my life, I find it to be the opposite. When we find ourselves in the good times of life and everything is going well, and God reveals himself in power and in grace in those moments, it's oftentimes harder for me to receive. It's one of those things where it's like when I'm in the lows, I'm like, oh God, if you could just do this or just bring me out of this and we're just really leaning into him because we know we need some sort of help and we are desperate. And it's almost like that, the, the old thing we, we've always said or all of us have said at some point in our life, God, if you just do this for me, I'll, I'll never cuss again, right? Like I'll never do that again or I'll never do this again. And then what happens? God brings us out of that moment and we're right back to the way we were, right? And it, because things are going well and when things are going well, we don't want God to mess with it. We don't really want him to reveal his power and his grace because what he's doing in our lives is revealing that he is greater than any circumstance, anything we accomplish, anything we achieve. And so oftentimes when we're in the lows, he pulls us up out of those things, but we're in the highs. He has to remind us that he is greater and that he is a greater joy than anything we're finding joy in and what we're accomplishing and what we're achieving and what we're receiving. But when we're in the heights of life, we just think to ourselves, man, if I could just get a little bit more of this. Like, I'm doing good. I don't really need God to do anything in my life right now. Actually, I kind of just need him to refrain from doing anything in my life. 
Because all I need, and we'll always have this feeling, I just need a little bit more of this. I just need a little bit more of that. I just got to accomplish a little bit more. But if we feel like we're on the right track, then we feel a whole lot of hope in our own lives. And we feel a whole lot of contentment that if I just keep accomplishing, if I just keep achieving and pursuing, then I can have everything that I long for. And oftentimes, God will show us by his great grace that those things that we're seeking joy in will not fulfill us. And David has that moment here in this text. There's this time of celebration, and David's going to learn that only through understanding God's holiness and his grace, these two things combined, can we actually experience the thrill of who we're created to be and what we long to experience in community and in our individual lives, that when we are in the presence of God, there must be an understanding of who he actually is to find a joy that surpasses all circumstances. And we're going to begin to see this in David's life as we tell this story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we won't read it together this morning for the sake of time, but I want you to be able to follow along. And the words will be on the screen, but if you have your Bible, it's really good for you always to be there and turn to that text. uh, So you can follow along with us, make sure what we're saying and talking about is actually there. Uh, We want to present God's word to you the best that we possibly can. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. And so there are stacks of Bibles in the lobby, and you can have one of those. That's our gift to you. Because this is important for us to understand that the holiness and grace of God in the midst of the high moments of our lives and in the midst of the low moments of our lives are really the recipe for our joy. To understand who God is and what he has done for us, this is where we find the deepest joy when we rest in these two realities. And so just to bring us up to speed really quickly with where we are in 2 Samuel chapter 6, if you've been with us throughout the whole time, you're aware of where we've been in the life of David's series as we're looking at how David's life really reveals a whole lot of things to us. There's a lot of characters in this story that reveal things and lessons that we need to learn, but ultimately uh, he is just pointing us to a greater king and a greater kingdom, and we'll see that again this morning in this passage. But David has been anointed king. The the Israelite people were called to be the people of God in the Old Testament to reveal what it is like to be God's people, to reveal his kingdom amongst the nations and to one another. And they desired a king like all the other nations had, one man to represent them, to be kind of the the mediator for them, the champion for them, so to speak, to, to everybody else has a king and everybody else has rulers and everybody else is following someone and they were to follow God and God alone. But they desired a king and so God actually gave them King Saul. And King Saul was to reveal the the glory of God and to lead in the way that God would lead his people, but he fails to do so. And so God comes along and anoints David to be the next king. But David at this time is just a teenager. He's a shepherd boy in his father's field. He's completely unqualified to be king. And he goes on in life after being anointed to be the next king, just being a shepherd boy still, still learning in the wilderness. And and God is is really forging, as we've been seeing, this this king that David needed to be, to be a man after his own heart. Even though he would falter and fail and, and, and he had brokenness all throughout his life, which we'll continue to see in his story. God has anointed him, and David continues to turn back to him, showing that he's a man after God's heart, that he desires to give glory to him, and we'll see that in the text this morning. But then finally, God uses him as this Philistine named Goliath, a giant, comes forward, and and he begins to declare that the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is not the true God, that nobody should worship him, that they can actually crush them, and that their God, Dagon, is better, and... and, uh, David hears about this, and and he's like, nobody can talk about God this way. God has made promises to his people. And so he goes up against Goliath, really to stand for the glory of God. And he defeats Goliath. And he he begins to rise amongst the people as people are looking to David and wondering who David is, and and is he anointed to be the next king? And David is, is blessed by God throughout all of the kingdom, and Saul's pride gets the best of him. Saul is not a man after God's own heart, and he's pursuing life and the things of the world, and he wants to have his own name but be glorified. He wants to accomplish and to achieve. That's where he's finding his value and his worth, and we've, we've seen the, the difference between finding our value and worth in our creator and in the things of man. But because of Saul's pride, he begins to chase after David. 
He wants to destroy David. He wants to take his life. And so David, we saw even last week, he's on the run. He was in hiding. We found him in a cave where he, he spares Saul's life because, again, he wants to give glory to God over taking matters into his own hands. Everything is about pointing us towards God in David's life. And so David's life just continues to be this incredible story that covers the full range of human activity and human emotion. It's one of the beauties of it, as we've seen and will continue to see in this narrative play out. Of, uh, it's full of political intrigue and betrayal and the quest for power. We'll see sex and money and love and kindness and friendship. Like, it is truly better than any modern-day Netflix original. And I know all of us are just thinking about the show we're going to go binge-watch later today, and maybe we should pick up our Bibles because the story is so much richer. And it actually is life-giving. I love how Eugene Peterson put it in his book about David's life. He said this, the David story presents us not with a polished ideal in which to aspire, which is oftentimes the way we present David, but he says this, but with rough edge actuality. I love that. David has little wisdom to pass on to us about how to live a successful life. As one said, the best of men are still men at best. And there are many, both positive and negative, lessons that we can learn from David's life. But Peterson says this, his importance isn't in his morality or power, but in his turning to God in all things. Every event in his life was a confrontation with God. And we've talked over and over again here about how discipleship growth happens in tension. And everything we see David go through in life is this tension with God. And we see him and have the option to either turn to God or away from God to grow into who we were created to be or to walk in and of ourselves. And this tension is where we find the greatness of this story. How it needs to apply into the nitty-gritty things of our lives, the daily things that we go through. This is what takes the, the gospel truth from a Sunday to a Monday. This is everything that we need to discover in our lives. And David is an example of this, and yet again continues, as we'll see today, just to point us towards a greater king and a greater kingdom. And so as we get to 2 Samuel chapter 6, I do want to encourage you over this week to read 1 Samuel 25 through 2 Samuel 5. All right, because that's how much space we're missing uh, of the story this morning as we jump into chapter 6. But what we see in that passage, just really quickly in those passages, is that David was still in hiding. When we left him last week, we had learned a lot from him, but he was still in a hiding place. Saul actually goes back to Jerusalem, but then comes after him again, and David spares his life again. And then finally, Saul dies by his own sword in battle with the Philistines. Jonathan, David's friend and Saul's oldest son, passes away in battle as well. We get to see David mourn by looking to God. And then at this point, as we continue to move on, the kingdom after Saul's death was divided. They had the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, and David finally becomes king, but it's not king over all the Israelite people. He becomes the king of Judah, and everybody in that area, in that region, gathers around him, but Saul's son, Isbosheth, becomes king of Israel. And for another seven and a half years, King David has been anointed to be king over all of the Israelite people to point them towards the God who created them, to, to reveal to the nations around them who God is and what it looks like to be his people. But for another seven and a half years, the people of God were divided until Ishbosheth was killed and the people finally gathered under David. And at age 30, David becomes king over all of Israel. And for the next three decades, we will see him turn to God in the highs and the lows and everything that takes place in his life. And we will learn many great lessons about who God is and what God has done for us. And that gets us to chapter 6. David has just become king over all of Israel, and the first thing that he does, just before our text, is he goes to battle against the Philistines, and now there is a time of peace amongst the Israelite people, and because they are in peace, David thinks to himself, what do I need to do to make God the center of all of the Israelite people? 
What do we do to turn towards him? We haven't been following him. We haven't been seeking him. We haven't been revealing him amongst the Israelite people in Jerusalem and beyond. And we need to do that. What he wants to do is restore the glory and honor of God God in the center of all of the Israelites. And we see him actually do that, just to jump ahead a little bit, for the next three decades, David is going to make God the center of the Israelite people. He's going to make prayer, the the surrender to God, the number one thing that he, as a leader in the Israelite people, do. And for 30 years, three decades, the Israelite people thrive and they flourish under King David. They're not putting their kingdom on any kind of political platform or any kind of military strategy, but what they're doing is just putting God at the center and they thrive. And, and, and I wish that we as, could take this lesson from David and see this. And just as a quick kind of side note, like I just wonder to myself, what would it look like if the people of God today truly put God at the center of everything that they were and they focused on him as the, the unity binding piece of life that we were created to have in him? And what would that reveal to one of, each of us and to the world around us? What would it look like even just to our city if the people of God in our city began to gather together unified in the gospel truth of who God is and what he has done beyond all other things, worship differences, denominational differences, but we said this is the truth and word of God and this is what we stand upon and who he is and what he has done and we began to love one another in the unity of the truth of who God is, what would it look like? How much would it change and transform our own lives and the cities that we live in, the communities that we're a part of? I love this idea from David. Here's what he's saying. I want to take the Israelite people, and I just want them to have unity around the one true king. And this is a mark of a true leader. He says, I have been anointed king over all of the Israelite people, but all that I want to do is point my people to the real king. It's not about my platform, it's not about my name, it's not about my truth, it's not about my glory, it's not about my victories, that is not where I get my value and worth, and every true leader should be pointing towards the truer king. I love how David gives us this example, and the one thing that he wants to do to kind of get this kick-started, to bring the glory of God back to the center of his people, the center of the Israelite people, today the center of the church is the presence of God. And in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. Now, for many of us, we probably have some idea of what the Ark of the Covenant is. If you've seen Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, like you have some kind of picture of the, the Ark, right? And, and the power of it. Um, but we don't always want to get our theology from Hollywood. Uh, it's not typically the best way to do that. Um, and so biblically speaking, the Ark dates all the way back to Moses, God had commanded Moses to assemble the ark as a symbol of his presence among the people in the Old Testament. And we'll see as we move into our time today, once Christ has come and lived and died and risen, what, where we see his presence today in the temple. But in the Old Testament, the ark represented the presence of God. And God gave Moses, and this is really important for us when we see this story, and I'll tell the story this morning really quickly, but we need this background. He told Moses specifically to, in, to construct and build this chest, the ark, out of a geisha wood. This is how it was supposed to be made. He gave him all the specifications. It was to be plated in gold. On top of it was this intricate lid that was placed down on top, and it had two cherubim or angels on top. Their wings touched in the middle. And then there was a gold-plated plate there or seat type of thing that was called the mercy seat. And the the Ark of the Covenant was to be kept in the temple amongst the people of God in the back room, okay? It was a room that nobody else went into. Right? It's like all the best deals and biggest things happen in the back room, right? It's the secret room. And so the, the Ark of the Covenant was held in the back room of the temple. No one was allowed to go near the Ark because of the holiness of God, the power of God, the beauty of God. Only once a year could the high priest go behind the curtain, the veil of the temple where the Ark was kept, and make a sacrifice upon the mercy seat for the sins of the people 
people of Israel, and it was to postpone the judgment of sin from God on the people of Israel until the Messiah comes. So year after year, they would do this once a year, and then throughout the year in smaller ways to remind them we need a Savior. God is holy, and we are not. And we cannot get to God on our own. There's nothing that we can do. Sacrifice is required for forgiveness. And they would remind themselves of this. And this is what the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament is. So the high priest would go and do this, postponing the judgment of sin until the Messiah would come and once and for all be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the people who would pay the penalty of sin for us. And we know that Jesus does come, the Messiah, that he lives perfectly on our behalf the way that we could not live that he dies on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. He is the sacrifice for our rebellion. And he rises from the grave to defeat sin and death so that we might place our faith in him and by his grace through his work have salvation and life and eternity and the freedom to walk in the way that we were created to live and walk. Not out of duty towards him, but in freedom with him. We are brought into community in the presence of God. But in the Old Testament, the ark was the presence of God. And it was in the temple, in the back room, the high priest alone could go there once a year because of the holiness of God, and they had great reverence for it. There were three things that you found in the ark that we see in Scripture. One was a preserved jar of manna, and that represented God's provision for the Israelite people. The second were the Ten Commandment tablets representing God's rule. And then there was a staff that Aaron used to lead God's people with into the promised land, and that represented his power. And so you have God's power, his provision, and then the way that he's calling us to walk in his power and his provision, his power and his grace, his authority and his mercy. This is what is inside the ark. And it also came with some rules. And this is extremely important for us to know and understand as we get this, this story this morning because the, in the book of Numbers, we see how we are supposed to treat the ark. The book of Numbers is not just a book of numbers. There's actually some really cool stories in there. Again, I would encourage you to take it and give it a read. But here's what we see. That because God is completely holy and we are not, it was not to be the ark seen directly. So it was to be covered up, and there's very specific instructions on what you cover it with, how you cover it, but it was to remain covered. We could not put our eyes upon the presence of God. His holiness is too great. His power is too majestic. We truly should stand in awe, and if we were before God and in his presence, we would be in awe. It's it's almost like looking over the the Grand Canyon, and it's, it's beautiful, but you also immediately understand that this thing could completely overpower me. Like, I stand no chance in its presence. It is greater than me. It should be respected as such, but man, it's also beautiful. And so you kind of want to lean over more and more and more and get more and more and more of it, and it's just life-giving, but you also have this deep respect for it. And this is what the ark in the presence of God was like. So they weren't to look at it. They had to keep it covered. If you were going to move it, then they had these gold rings that were on the side of the ark that these agacia wood poles would slide through, and it had to be carried upon your shoulders. So keep that in mind. It also needed to be carried by Levite priests, people who had been set apart by God to be priests were the only ones that were supposed to be carrying it. And then finally, it was never to be touched. The ark was not to be touched. There's a holiness that is in the representation of God that if sinful and rebellious people touched it, if darkness touched it, then the light would just absolutely consume it. And so we read in the Old Testament that if you were to touch the ark, then you would surely die. Our sin and rebellion would just immediately be wiped out if we touched the pure goodness and righteousness of God's presence. All of this, because in the Old Testament, all of it summarized is this is the very presence of the almighty creator and sustainer of all things. So it was huge and it was to be revered and it was to be honored and it was to be in the place that it was supposed to be in and you were supposed to worship God in the way that God has called you to worship him. And he says, I will bless my people and you will be a blessing to the nations. This is how and why I have created you. But the Israelites didn't do that with the ark. 
We see actually earlier on in 1 Samuel that they were going into a battle with the Philistines and they thought to themselves, hey, why don't we just take the ark with us? It's supposed to be in the back room of the temple. The high priest is the only one that's supposed to go see it once a year. We're not even supposed to uncover it, but let's take it out to battle because surely if we take it to battle, we will be victorious. And they start to see and use God, not honor him. They begin to worship him in their own way, not the way that God had called them to. God becomes more like a lucky rabbit's foot to them to take into battle than the God who created them and sustains them. They lost the battle. The Philistines win, and they actually take the ark. And we've talked about this already in this series, in the Life of David series. But basically, they take the ark, and they put it into their temple, their main temple, where their god, Dagon, was. And God totally humiliates their god, Dagon. And then all the people around them, the ark, are getting sick. And so they send the ark back to the Israelite people. They put it on a cart, okay? And and this is very important. They put it on a cart, and they take it back to Israel territory. And if you can imagine, kind of like, there's a line here, and this is the Philistines' territory, and that's the Israelite territory. You kind of just get the picture that they have this cart, and they're just kind of like, onto the Israelite territory. They're like, we, we do not want this thing anymore. We don't want to mess with this thing anymore. This God is powerful. And so they send it back to the Israelite people. But Saul doesn't go and get it. I think this shows us the indifference of Saul's heart, what he's actually pursuing, what he's worshiping, who he is. Because he doesn't go get it throughout all of his reign. The ark is not where it's supposed to be. And we actually see that this man named Shemesh, he sees that the ark has come over into Israelite territory and he thinks to himself, this is pretty cool. And he gets the ark and he takes it into his own home. And this is where he begins to store it until a whole bunch of people around him and Shemesh wasn't there, but a whole bunch of people, his neighbors are coming around. They're going, man, the ark is incredible. It's unbelievable. I wonder what's in it. And they start getting really interested in what the ark is, but they're not really interested in God telling them who he is and what his presence is. And so they go to the ark and they open it up to see what's inside. And it goes about as well as it does for the Germans and Raiders of the Lost Ark, all right? Like, I don't, I don't know if they just completely melted. I kind of like to think of it that way. But they just, all of them were gone. And so Shemesh sees this and he goes, this is probably a little too dangerous to have in my house. And so he calls up a priest friend named Abend- Abinagab. And Abinadab is somebody who takes it into his own house, into the guest room. And he and his two sons, which we see in 2 Samuel chapter 6, are going to take care of this thing for two decades, 20 years. And so this is where David is. David, and we need to quickly see this story, but we have to have that backstory to understand what's going on here. The Israelite people have finally united in David, and David is a man after God's own heart, so he says, we can't be united in me. God is just using me. He's just blessing me. We have to be united in the God, the creator and sustainer of all things. He has to be the center of all that we are, and that is the only thing that allows us to experience love and community and mission and purpose and value the way that we are created to experience it, and so we have to unite the Israelite people around the presence of God. He has to be the center. So this revival of sorts is breaking out amongst the Israelite people, and David remembers the ark, and he remembers that there's only one hope and one king and one kingdom and one love and one truth and one God, and that only with him at the center of all of life can we be the people God has called us to be. And so look what he does. He takes 30,000 men to go and get this ark. And, and, and here's what we need to know. We already said that they're in a peacetime. David had just gone to war with the Philistines. They're at peace. So he's not building this army of 30,000 men because he's afraid they're going to be attacked as they get close to the Philistine land to get the ark. What he is actually doing here is building this incredible parade. It is Macy's Day parade time. 
Like, this is the height of, of the new life of the Israelite people. Like, if we're watching a movie that of all of this taking place, we've seen all of this hardship, and finally, the hero God has been revealed, and he is using the people on earth to bring about his glory, and the Israelite people are finally worshiping him above all other things, and they're throwing this big parade, and it looks like to us, everything is, is on the high, the high parts of life. Everything's good. Everything's taking the turn that we want to see take, and everything is going to be good from this point out. They went through the lows to get through the highs, and here we have arrived. See, that's what David believes is taking place. And so he takes these 30,000 men to Abinadab and his two sons. He lets them know, hey, you need to get the ark ready. We're coming. We're going to get this thing. We're taking it back to Jerusalem. We're going to center our lives around God and who he is. And so at this point, this huge group of people is, is, is absolutely partying. You have every marching band in the, whole, in the whole state of Israel. Everybody is just singing, rejoicing. They are all praising and moving it together. But... David, and by extension us, are about to learn these two critical things about God's holiness and his grace. These two pretty strange things, things that we wouldn't really see taking place here, and we don't really understand at first blush at all, but they lead to the greatest amount of rejoicing and joy, and we must understand them. They get to Abinadab's house, and see if you can pick up on a couple of the details that are taking place here in the text. The, the Ark of the Covenant, once they get there, is actually described to us. It means they can see it. It's not covered up like it's supposed to be. It says that they are also sitting in on this brand spanking new trolley, this, this new way, this new cart that they're going to move the Ark from where it is all the way into Jerusalem so they are not using the poles that they were supposed to, that God had told them to use when they move the ark. And on top of that, Abinadab's sons are the ones that are going to lead the cart. And so they think to themselves, they're not Levites, they're not priests, but they've lived with the ark for 20 years, and so they deserve to be able to take it. And this is where we see Ehu and Uzzah, and they're going to lead the cart so if we know the backstory, like if we're just looking at this story, first blush, we're just kind of seeing it, we're reading all this together, then we do think to ourselves, okay, Israel's about to go into this heighted moment, everything is good, they're worshiping God, like we've gone full circle, this is great, bless David, here we go, these are entering into the glory days of Israel, but if we know the background, then we know something is potentially going to rain on this parade. They are not worshiping God the way that he had called them to worship him. When we look at the details, we begin to see that. And it looks like they're not concerned with it. I don't know where David's heart was, but, but either the, the men that are there, Abinadab and his sons, did not understand and take the time to read about what they had and to read about the presence of God and to read what God had commanded of them to be in the presence of God and how you can actually have it lead to rejoicing and joy rather than sorrow and death. They, they didn't read that. And I don't know if David knew. I don't know where his heart was. But David certainly sees all of this, and he doesn't correct it. So I don't know if he had not taken the time either. He's thinking to himself, we've got to put God at the center of everything, but then he's not taking the time to go, how does God want to be at the center of everything? How does God tell us to worship him? How does he tell us to rejoice in his presence? And so I, I, I don't know if he didn't do that, he was just naive, or if he sees it all and thinks, man, all the people are really excited, there's 30,000 people here rejoicing, and this is how Abinadab did it, and he's had it for 20 years, and so maybe it's just okay, and, and he just goes along with what all the people are doing, because in that very moment, he would rather have their approval than the approval of God. I don't know where his heart was, but we see that he doesn't do what God had called them to do. And it seems very important that if we really want to know who God is, then we would want to know how he calls us to worship him. How does he call us to have salvation in him? This is important. How does he call us to live in him? 
And it's not that to have salvation in God, you have to have everything figured out. You have to have read all the scripture, understand it all, have everything all kind of stacked up, ducks in a row. That's not it at all. The only thing that we need for salvation is to know that Jesus is who he says he is, that he lived for us, died for us, rose from the grave to overcome sin and death. And by grace, we are saved through faith. But then there's this desire to know him, this desire to understand who he actually is. And if we have no desire to actually know who he is, then are we actually worshiping the God we proclaim to worship? Because without worshiping who he says he is, then it's actually a gospel-less presentation that they're giving us, that we're pursuing in our lives. We're not actually living in the gospel truth of what God has called us to. So here they are. They begin to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. This big parade is happening. The streets are lined with this rejoicing. Everything is great. And then all of the sudden, in the midst of the parade, there's an uncommon commotion. I don't know if you've ever been in something that's really exciting, and then all of a sudden something takes place that's tragic, and it kind of starts really small. And so there's a group of people that were rejoicing, and they began to gather around this something tragic that just took place, while the people in the back are still rejoicing. But then, but then all of a sudden people start noticing something uncommon in this type of situation is happening, and it just gets quieter and quieter and quieter, and suddenly all eyes are on the tragic event. And this just went from a parade to a funeral procession. Because in the midst of everything that was taking place, the cart is going along the road and it hits a bumpy point. And Uzzah, who is leading the cart, just out of total reflexes, probably, this is something all of us would do as well, if we don't understand the importance of what we should and shouldn't do and the instructions that we should have of how we should uh, treat the thing that is going on that we are leading and guiding, then we're just naturally going to put our hand out and touch the thing that's falling. And this is what Uzzah does. The ark starts to wobble and begins to fall. And so he just instinctively reaches out and steadies it. And the text says that this angered the Lord. And I know immediately we think to ourselves, and I wish we had all the time in the world to kind of dig into this this morning, but we don't. But we immediately think, "Mm, that seems a little extreme. Like, why would God do that? That, that, that's not the kind of God that I think I would worship. That's not the kind of God that I put make in my own image. And we immediately want to when we hear that, and I, and I think we need the freedom to be able to do this. This is what David actually does to get through it. But, but he actually puts, and I think we a lot of times put God under our own judgment seat. We bring him into the courtroom and we reside as judge and we look at him and think to ourselves, we know better than you. But I, but I love what it says here in this instance. Here's what it says, that it angered the Lord. And the word that is used there is that he was angered over Uzzah's carelessness. He was angered over Uzzah's familiarity with the ark. He's had it for 20 years, and it's almost like he's just kind of, you know, been a Christian for so long, and, and he just kind of goes through the motions now. And so he's just very familiar, and the gospel doesn't really get him anymore, and people get baptized. No, there's no emotion there. And it's just kind of, I walk into this place, and I kind of sing some of the songs, but it's kind of, I don't really like that one. It's not about worshiping God. It's about how I hear the song, what emotions it stirs in me. I don't really want to study God's word. I just kind of want you to get done so I can see the beginning of the football game. And and it's just kind of, we're so familiar. I've heard it a hundred times. Just tell me what to do. Give me some steps. Let me leave. We're just so familiar. That's the heart of where Uzzah is. He just becomes careless. There's no reverence for God. And it says that his life was taken at that moment. And listen, this can so easily be us at times. That we just struggle to to really give reverence to God and who he is because there's a lack of understanding in our culture of his holiness. We love to talk about his love and his grace, but without understanding his holiness, our understanding of his love and grace falls so short of something that is life-transforming, of something that brings a rejoicing and a joy that surpasses all circumstances and moments in our lives. And so here's what we see, the anger of God because of Uzzah's carelessness and familiarity with what is taking place, Uzzah touches the ark and dies. And the people are stunned. David's stunned. 
We are too. Again, we probably think to ourselves, that's just way too extreme. I don't understand that. And here's what it makes David. David says he gets angry. He gets fearful. Here's a man after God's own heart. I want us to take notice of this, that from the beginning of time, even from someone who wrote much of the Bible, we have a tendency to get offended at God's words and his truth. This is not a new cultural thing for us. Cultures change, winds of time shift, things that we believe transition like the wind in our day and age and in our culture. The word of God remains true and the same. So things that David might have been offended by, we might not be offended by. But things that we might be offended by, David might not be offended by. But here's the reality. God's word is truth. Our hearts are prone to wander away into seeking our own selves and our own identities, our own kingdoms, our own freedoms, our own accomplishments, desiring to have salvation and life and the rules that we make and we design for ourselves and we are prone so much to that that there will be things in God's word that offend us there just will be and David's in that boat as well but we have to wrestle with those things and try to understand what God is actually saying to us and we have to understand that he is ultimately God and we are not that something is taking place here that we need to learn from. And oftentimes, as I was thinking about this, the most powerful things in our lives are the things that are most most life-giving, but we need the most instruction with. And, And when I was reading this, and to be honest with you, when I was looking kind of this whole picture and everything that we talked about to get up to this point, I began to think to myself, because I'm 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 with you, as soon as I started reading this and I saw what God did. Then I, I got a little bit kind of like, Ugh. like that's why I don't want to preach this text. But then I remembered all of the things that God told the people to do in his presence. All of the things that he had commanded them to do. And suddenly I began to understand that our shock shouldn't be that Uzzah died when he touched the representation of God in the Old Testament. But that Uzzah would take something so powerful and just dismiss the instructions. And how does that transfer into our lives today? As I said, the most powerful things in life often are the most life-giving. And I started thinking about electricity. And and I've had to do a lot of different things in my house with very small things, okay? Like I'm not an electrician at all. But every time I'm starting to do something, even just unscrewing a light bulb, I have reverence for the power of electricity. It is a beautiful thing. I love it. I know all of us do. It is an incredible modern luxury that we live with, but it is powerful, And so every time I'm just like unscrewing something or I'm taking off a faceplate, I'm trying to mess around with something, I always have this moment where I'm like, I need to check the breaker like 10 times. Like, it's just OCD about it. Like, am I sure I got it off? Just turn the whole thing off, right? Like, I mean, because I'm just, I'm reverencing the power that is. It's a beautiful thing. Like the Grand Canyon that I said, I look over and I'm in awe of it. I want more of it. I want to understand it. It brings value to life. But at the same time, I've got to give reverence to it because it is so powerful. Well, God is the most powerful being in all of his creation and beyond, and therefore the most life-giving. But also he gave us clear instructions and in how we as his people should pursue his presence. In the Old Testament, it was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, because Christ has come and lived and died and risen and the veil of the temple was torn, where we can place our faith in Christ and by grace through his work be saved and the spirit comes to live and dwell within us, we are the temple of God. And God has given us instruction on how we receive salvation in him, how we walk in him, how we understand that freedom, how we pursue the joy and rejoicing that comes in him and him alone. In the Old Testament, it was the instruction that he gave to those seeing and overseeing the ark. And even though the people are zealous for God's presence, his blessing, they aren't, in this case, actually zealous for him. They want to worship God in their own way. They're not worried about what God has called them to. For us today, it would be, I'm going to make my salvation in my own way. I might call God, God. I might believe in the right name. I might worship him. I might show up on Sunday. But my salvation isn't in my surrender to him. It's in my work for him. This is the the equivalent of what they're doing. We want God and we want his blessing, but we don't want to 
We're not zealous for doing it in the way that he has called us to. They didn't cover it up. They didn't carry it. And I also want us to understand the mercy that God has shown in the midst of all of that. Because they already were not doing any of the things that God had told them to do. They didn't cover it up. They didn't carry it right. The Levites weren't carried and, and God did not strike them down. He continued to show mercy. But in this instance, the people of God are parading into Jerusalem with the presence of God and they are missing everything about what God has said and declared himself to be and how to actually be in his presence and rejoice and have joy. And if God allows them to do that, then they will miss the beauty and the gospel when they're revealing to the nations who God actually is and so God protects his name and protects his truth and then we see when Uzzah does what he is not supposed to do his life is taken and Uzzah is really an example to us of what it looks like ultimately for us today to reject God and who he tells us he is see the people miss the holiness of God they, they didn't understand his power. They weren't in awe of him. They just wanted to use him. And David had, in effect, just seen God as that lucky rabbit foot that the Israelite people had seen God as so long ago. Let's just parade him through the town and surely we will be blessed. And how often do we miss the glory of God in our own lives? And see, God's holiness scared David. And so this is what we see in the text. David goes, basically, man, if this is how it's going to be, and he's realizing the, the power of God, and it's like, God, if this is how your holiness is going to respond to my sinfulness and brokenness, then I just don't want it. But this is something that we must understand in our lives today when we worship God. It sounds so crazy, but we must know how holy he is and how sinful we are. Otherwise, we can have the right God, and we can come to church, and we can say we believe, but, and we, we can have the right knowledge, but try to determine our own way to relate to him, our own way to worship him, our own ways of salvation, and this is what David was doing. And so he realizes this, and suddenly this is the realization that David is coming to when he begins to push the ark away. He's beginning to understand that just like Water and fire, or a base and an acid, they can't coexist together. One will consume the other. And sin and holiness cannot dwell together. One will consume the other. And this is what terrifies him. He's like, I, I, I really underestimated how holy God uh, is. And I really underestimated how powerful he is and how sinful we are. And when God says something, he is faithful to it, and he begins to understand this. Tim Keller, I love how Tim Keller said this, when he was reflecting on how God is, and, and he says to us that God can only be God. He is who he is. I think it brings a little bit of light to what David was experiencing here. Tim Keller says this, if you run a car into a brick wall and the car is destroyed, is it unfair of the wall? No, the wall is just itself. If you eat fatty foods and you become unhealthy, is it unfair of your body? No, it's just your body. If you refuse to treat God for what and who he is and what he says, then you will ultimately fall. But then he goes deeper into the daily things of life. And if you refuse to see that he is trustworthy, then you will be destroyed in life with worry. If you refuse to see that God is merciful, then you will be destroyed in life with guilt. If you refuse to see that God is sovereign and holy, then you will be destroyed in life with pride and selfishness. If you reject his power and grace, you will never feel accepted, not truly. See, what David understands here is that he needs a savior and it terrifies him that God is so holy. So he gets mad and he sends the, the Ark of the Covenant away. This is what we see. He sends it to somebody, Obed, who's not even an Israelite. He's a Hittite. But here's what happens. Here's the rest of the story. This is the second crazy thing, and it's really quickly because I need to spend all of our time focusing on holiness because I feel like that's where we, we really misunderstand God, and it really rips away the joy and rejoicing that we can have in him. But here's what David realizes, and this is how the ark ultimately makes it back to the people of God, and for the next three decades, they will put God at the center of all that they are, and this is how we can put him in the center of who we are as well. The second weird thing that happens is that David sends this ark 
work away to someone who's not even an Israelite, but then they treat it with respect, Obed does, in his home, and for three months, God blesses everything that Obed does. And we see the grace of God that even somebody who's not an Israelite, and if we had time, we could go into how the gospel is for all people, and God is revealing that here. Anybody who places their faith in him, no matter the culture, background, who you are, what you have done, God is for all people. His truth is for all people, and he saves all people who put their faith in him by his grace. It's not deserved. And when David gets word of this, he begins to understand the problem wasn't God and his, his power, it was my heart. And by God's blessing the Hittite, he learns God is not only more holy than he ever thought he was, but he is more gracious than he could have ever imagined. And in God's grace, we can experience his holiness. See, this is what David begins to understand. And so he goes to get the ark again, but this time he reads the instructions and he goes and they cover it up and they carry it with the poles and the Levites take it. They go six feet and he makes sacrifices to God to reveal God is most powerful and that they are trusting him. And David brings the ark back to Jerusalem and they begin to make God the center of all that they do and they reveal the gospel truth. This is what causes in David this new rejoicing because he is a transformed man. True rejoicing and pure joy comes when we understand the holiness of God and that is coupled with the grace of God. And because of his grace, we can be in the presence of his holiness and we can begin to live the way that we are created to live. This is why David dances. It says at the end of the text, he dances like he has no control of himself. When we enjoy God's presence, respect God's authority, and experience his grace in life, that is the recipe for joy. So David dances among his people. He begins to pass out all of these delicacies to all the people that are there. This is a different kind of parade. Everybody there would have noticed that even his wife, he gets close to his house and his wife goes, this is not how a king acts. Because in an honor-shame society, you should be forcing everybody to honor you and to bring glory to you. And this is not how we are to act. But David says, no, I have seen the holiness of God. I have experienced the grace of God. And so I'm going to get even more undignified than this. And here's what he says. It's not me who built myself up to be king or has anything that I have. But God gave me by his grace the position that I am in. And so I will reveal him in all of life. And he was fruitful, even through the ups and the downs, joyful and rejoicing through any circumstance in life. But then there was his wife who denied that. And we see in verse 23, the very last verse, that she was unfruitful till the end of her days. Listen, what does our worship tell others and ourselves about the value of God that we place on him? Is our worship like Uzzah? Yes, Jesus, and yes, he's done these things, but... but but I'm not going to do it the way that he tells me to. I'm going to make my own way. Is it like David's wife? It's all just built on self and I've got to build myself up and my name has to have glory and honor. Or is it like David? I realize the holiness of God and I realize his grace. And in that, I will rejoice. And that is the opportunity that we have today.